It's an honor to be with you in worship this morning and to bring you a message from the Word of God. So we are continuing in your Advent series in the book of Isaiah, A Weary World Rejoices. And this morning we come to Isaiah chapter 53. So as we think about on this second day of Christmas, the birth of Christ, we're going to focus now on his purpose. Why did Jesus come as a baby? Because he had a mission to accomplish. And so all of us know what it's like to be captivated by a TV show or a movie, and maybe even some of us a book. You know, when you can't stop watching or you can't stop reading something because it's so riveting. And that's what good writers can do. They, they write compelling things. They draw you in. And if anyone's ever studied literature, you know that there are dozens of literary devices that good writers can use. And so when I was studying this passage for this morning, one in particular, one literary technique came to mind, which is irony. And one type of irony is when you have a situation that is strange because things happen in a way that seem to be the opposite of what we would expect. Imagine the situation where a man owns a house, but he can't sell it or rent it out because the foundation is faulty, and this house becomes a burden to him. But this man also has an enemy, and this enemy decides to burn down the house out of revenge. And so due to this heinous act of revenge, the owner can now actually collect the insurance money and is freed from the burden. This would be irony. But irony is not only a literary device. It's also something that happens in the world we live in. Things often happen in a way that we would not expect. The other day as a teacher, I'm a high school teacher, and I had a student complaining for about a half hour about how the school quarantines students and sends them home from school due to COVID-19. Then a few minutes later, this student asked to go to the nurse so he could call his mom and have her call him out of school because he didn't feel well. This was pretty ironic. But what's interesting is the kingdom of God is often in contrast to what we would expect from an earthly perspective. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate portrayal of irony. The irony of the cross is that the victory of God's kingdom is won through the death of the victor. It's through his suffering death that Jesus is victorious over sin and death. And this morning we're going to see three ways in which the suffering death of Jesus brings victory. First, through the death of Jesus, all who believe in him are brought into the kingdom of God. Second, through the death of Jesus, our sins are punished. And the third is through the death of Jesus, we're seen as righteous before God. Isaiah 53 contains what is referred to as the fourth servant song of Isaiah. There are four songs that are written about this servant of the Lord in the book of Isaiah. The first servant song is in Isaiah 42, and here the servant of the Lord is introduced as one who has a mission to accomplish and who would complete this mission successfully. 
The second servant song of Isaiah is in Isaiah 49, and the Lord's servant here is presented again, but this time there appears to be great difficulties in the execution of his work. In the third servant song of Isaiah in Isaiah 50, the servant himself is speaking this time, and he mentions the suffering which he will face, but he doesn't give a reason for this suffering. And now in our passage today, we will see the reason for his suffering. Isaiah begins this fourth and final servant song by telling us that the servant is of God, and he shall be exalted in the accomplishment of his work. And the introduction to this passage actually begins at the end of chapter 52 in verse 13. And this reads, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. This is Isaiah speaking the words of God. And God is saying, my servant shall act wisely. He's preparing us for what is about to come by telling us that this servant is not foolish. The suffering that he goes through is not a mistake. Rather, he's acting wisely. And the end result of it all is that he shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. The work of the servant will ultimately bring about his exaltation. This immediately brings us to the words of the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Philippians. After speaking of Christ humbling himself and becoming human and emptying himself by taking on the form of a servant, Paul then writes in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul tells us that Jesus became a servant. And through his death on the cross, he was highly exalted. We immediately see the connection between Jesus and the suffering servant of Isaiah. But in Isaiah, he doesn't dwell on the exaltation of the servant for too long. In verse 14, he writes, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Isaiah contrasts the remarkable exaltation of the servant with his clear shame and humiliation. And although Isaiah is writing about 750 years before Jesus is born, you may notice that this is written in the past tense. This is what is referred to as the prophetic perfect tense. It's something we see all throughout the prophetic writings of the Bible. It's a description of future events that are so certain to happen. They're so clear to the prophet that they're referred to in the past tense as if they've already happened. Isaiah is predicting that people will be astonished at the servant. And this is because his appearance is so marred. He's beyond human semblance. He, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. People will be astonished at the level of disfigurement of the servant. They'll wonder if he's even human. Isaiah immediately is contrasting this exaltation of Christ with the humiliation he will go through to accomplish his mission. His disfigured appearance appeals to the repulsive effects that scourging and crucifixion have on the human body. This was a process that made Jesus' bones out of joint. It covered his body in blood. And we're given the reason for this brutal disfigurement in the first part of verse 15. So 
shall he sprinkle many nations. The word sprinkle brings to mind in the law of Moses, the temple error, where the sprinkling of the blood of an animal sacrifice was used as a cleansing or a purifying rite. And in these purifying rites, the blood sprinkled was for the atonement of sins. The blood was sprinkled to cover the sins of God's people. And there was a priest who was the one who did the sprinkling. So the suffering servant in Isaiah is one who is both priest and sacrifice. He is the one who does the sprinkling, and it's his own blood that he has sprinkled. And unlike the priests of Old Testament Israel, Jesus sprinkles many nations. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus covers the sins of people from many nations. No longer is there a temporary, insufficient animal sacrifice that's only for the nation of Israel. The sacrifice of Jesus' blood covers people from all nations. It brings people from every nation into the people of God. Not only Jews, but people from everywhere. All peoples covered by the blood of Christ. And this gives us our first way that the suffering death of Jesus brings victory. Through the death of Jesus, all who believe in him are brought into the kingdom of God. The death of Jesus covers the sins of all who believe in him. Jesus expands the nation of God's people to all who have faith in him. And this includes people from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages. When animals were sacrificed as a substitute for God's people, they were never sufficient. They had to keep sacrificing animals over and over again because the people kept sinning. God's people needed an ultimate sacrifice. They needed a sacrifice that would be sufficient for all of his people and all of their sins. The blood of Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover all of our sins, past, present, and future. And it accomplishes God's purpose of bringing the nations to him. Throughout Isaiah, the suffering servant is portrayed as a gentle savior who would build a worldwide kingdom. And this would include the Gentiles, which is simply people that are non-Jewish. And he would have to overcome great difficulties in order to do this. So now we see that it's through his suffering that the servant will be exalted. It's through the sprinkling of his own blood that he covers the sins of all his people, which includes anyone who believes in him. The rest of verse 15 says, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. The sprinkling of the nations will take place through a global proclamation of the gospel. And this will include kings who are amazed and speechless at the message of the blessed accomplishment of this servant. The message will go to those who have never heard before. The message of Jesus Christ, who sacrificed his life so that we may have life in him. The message of Jesus Christ that all who believe in him are reconciled to God and saved from the punishment of their sins. And so the end of chapter 52, these final three verses, set the stage for this final servant song in Isaiah 53. Here in 53 verse 1, Isaiah begins with two rhetorical questions. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
So while we're given the end result in the introduction here, which is the exaltation of the servant, the exaltation of Jesus Christ, and this proclamation of his message to the nations across the earth, now Isaiah is expressing his dismay at his own people and predicting their own lack of belief. When the Gospels preach, many of Jesus' own people don't believe in his day. The, and the arm of the Lord refers to the Lord's power, the Lord's power that's revealed in the belief in the gospel. God's power reveals the truth of the gospel to us. The Holy Spirit brings us to faith and belief. Then Isaiah tells us why human intellect alone won't believe the truth. Why are there so few in Jesus' day and even in the world today that believe in Christ? In verse 2 we read, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The servant will grow up before him, meaning he will grow up before God. And we see this, Isaiah is predicting Jesus to be fully human. He'll grow up from a child into an adult and he'll live his entire life in the presence of God like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. There's a prediction earlier in Isaiah, chapter 11, that the Messiah would be a shoot that would grow up from the stump of Jesse. Uh, Jesse is the father of David. So this is just saying that the Messiah will be a descendant of David. Isaiah seems to be alluding to this here. But he will be a root out of dry ground because Jesus is born at a time when being a son of David or being from the stump of Jesse meant almost nothing. There was no son of David as king of Israel. The Romans were dominating the Jews. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. There was nothing about him that would make humans think anything of him. He did not have a royal throne or authority. He had no beauty that we should desire him. And we continue to see the irony of God's plan. God does things in ways we would never do, in ways we don't even expect. The greatest person to ever live, the one whom God sent to deliver all his people, God himself in the flesh, lived a life of relative obscurity. And when he did finally come into his public ministry, things didn't go so well. Verse 3 says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. People always look on the outside. We look for physical beauty, status, wealth. Jesus had none of these things. He was despised and rejected. The people of Israel were looking from a human perspective. Many of them wanted the Messiah to do things the way they wanted them done. They wanted someone to conquer the Romans. They wanted someone to free them from the political oppression. They wanted a triumphant son of David to sit on the throne and bring back the greatness of the kingdom of Israel. But they had no concern for dealing with their sin. God had a different plan. His Messiah, his servant, would do things God's way. He would free all of his people from their sins. But because he does things God's way and not the way the people want it, he's despised and rejected. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's one from whom men hide their faces. Even Jesus' own disciples deny him, flee from him, 
leave him to bear his burden alone. Isaiah predicts that people won't admire or honor the servant when he comes. Rather, they despise and reject him. They hide their faces from him. He's humiliated, a man of sorrows. He will have pain and grief. And he's cast aside from a human perspective because from a human perspective, he's nothing of value. Then Isaiah gets into the real purpose of his suffering in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The onlookers of Jesus' death saw someone cursed by God, someone dying the death of a criminal. But Jesus, the curse Jesus bore was not his own. He was punished by God, but not for anything that he did. Verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the second way in which the suffering death of Jesus brings victory. Through the death of Jesus, our sins are punished. Again, this is ironic because it's not what we would expect. Isaiah says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. When we see someone taking punishment for wrongdoing, we expect that they are the ones who did the wrongdoing. But God, in his infinite wisdom, gave us a way to freedom from our sins. He gave us a way for our sins to be punished, but that we may still have life. Romans 6 says, the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid those wages for us. The victory is won by the death of the victor. It's either in the death of Christ that our sins are punished, or we have to pay that debt ourselves. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And this brings us peace with God. It's through the wounds of Christ that we may be freed from the sins that caused him to die. I've spent most of my adult life coaching high school and college sports. And one thing that most teams have is preseason tryouts. This is where you have many players trying out for a spot on the team's roster. And when we as coaches would evaluate to see whether the players are good enough to be on the team. And this is how many people approach God. They view him as the coach evaluating every person and determining whether or not they're good enough to get a roster spot in heaven. Every religion, every other religion, teaches this in some form or another. And there are even many who are Christians that believe they can earn God's favor, or they just have to be a good person. But the Bible doesn't view sin as something we can overcome. When there's a wrong that's done, the penalty must be paid. And there's no people that are good enough on their own. Isaiah puts this Truth poetically in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has turned away from God and gone our own way. And we can't be good enough on our own to make the team. God is a holy, righteous judge. He can't wink or turn a blind eye to sin. Sin must be punished because he is just. 
But in his infinite wisdom, God made a way that we never would have dreamed of. God's salvation comes in a way that is opposite of what we would expect. God's victory comes through the death of the victor. Through the death of Jesus, our sins are punished. The punishment that he endured paid the penalty for the sins of all his people. Jesus was sacrificed in the place of those who have faith in him. And that is the gospel. That is the good news. Although we have sinned and we all deserve the wrath of God and the punishment of God, we don't have to be good enough. We don't have to earn a roster spot in heaven. In his infinite grace and wisdom, God has done it for us by sending his only son to die in our place. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Although Christ suffered, he endured suffering with patience. This was all a part of God's plan from the beginning. He suffered voluntarily. He didn't open his mouth in protest or proclaim his innocence. Peter describes this in 1 Peter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus submitted himself. He entrusted himself to the will of the Father. And Isaiah says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here Isaiah is emphasizing the patience and the willingness of the servant. And he also seems to have an allusion to the sacrificial lamb in Exodus. This is where the Israelites marked their doorposts with the blood of a spotless lamb who was sacrificed. And this sign spared them from the death of their firstborn sons. But the Passover lamb was pointing us to the ultimate sacrificial lamb. The one who would save all of his people from death. And John the Baptist proclaimed when Jesus came to him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the spotless Lamb who was killed so that death may pass us over. Jesus went to his death willingly, although he was innocent. He allowed it because he died on our behalf. Isaiah adds that this was by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Another case of irony here is that it was through a corrupt human judicial process that God brought about his judgment on the servant. Christ was taken away by death through an unjust trial. Then Isaiah says, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? In Christ's generation, there was little consideration of what his death meant. They didn't consider that his death was for the sins of God's people. They considered him stricken, smitten by God. But he died as a substitute for his people. In verse 9, it continues to establish his innocence. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah tells us that the servant will die with the wicked. And Jesus fulfilled this with his death on the cross. Crucifixion was a death penalty that was reserved for criminals. 
And Jesus was actually crucified between two criminals. And then there was a statement, a rich man in his death that Jesus also fulfilled. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. This was a rich man who buried him with the royal treatment. But he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was an innocent man who died the death of a criminal. Then in verse 10, we see that this was no accident. It was not a mistake. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes a guilt offering. It's the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah is predicting that the death of the servant is the fulfillment of God's will. Jesus was put to death because his soul was a guilt offering. Throughout the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system was pointing out the need for atonement, the need for the sacrifice of a substitute. But the animal sacrifices were not sufficient. They couldn't cover the sins of God's people. And Jesus was offered up as the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate guilt offering. His death is sufficient to cover all of our sins, to cover the sins of all of his people. And because of this, he shall see offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The death of Jesus produces life in his people. All who believe in Christ have life in him. We are his offspring. Jesus lived a sinless life, and the grave couldn't hold him. He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he's now glorified in his reign at the right hand of the Father. Christ is exalted because of his humble, obedient death, in which he fulfilled the divine plan to save God's people from our sins. All who believe in Jesus are forgiven in his death. All who abandon our self-reliance and rely solely on Christ for our salvation have life in him. And we are his offspring. Verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And we see this, again, irony that the suffering of the servant will bring him satisfaction. Isaiah continues to lay out the gospel with clarity. And right here in verse 11, he says, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And this is a truth that summarizes the gospel. Our sins are transferred to Christ. He bears our iniquity. Our sins are charged to his account. Christ bears the guilt of our sins, but it doesn't end there. Our sins are transferred to him, but his righteousness is transferred to us. And this is the third way that the suffering death of Jesus brings victory. Through the death of Jesus, we are seen as righteous before God. So not only does Jesus bear our iniquities, but his righteousness is given to us. Jesus died the death we deserve, but he also lived the righteous life that we could never live. R.C. Sproul refers to this as the great transfer. And it's really at the heart of the gospel. It's a double transfer. The sins of all believers in Christ are transferred to him, and he paid the penalty of those sins. But his righteousness is transferred to us, and then we are seen as righteous before God. Everyone will stand before God in judgment. And there's only two options in that moment. 
Some will stand before God and be judged on their own sinful records. And some will stand before God with the perfect righteousness of Christ. There are those who pay the penalty of their own sins, and there are those whom Christ paid the penalty for them. And because of this, Isaiah writes in verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. God's victory is won through the death of the victor, through the death of Jesus Christ. And here God is saying that the portions or the spoils of this victory will be shared with many. The victory won by Christ on the cross is shared with all of his people. All who have faith in Christ share in the blessings that he won. Through faith in Jesus Christ, those who believe in him are brought into the kingdom of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the sins of all his people are forgiven. And through faith in Jesus Christ, those who believe are given the righteousness of Christ. We see that Jesus intercedes before the Father on our behalf. And Paul wrote about this in Romans 8, verse 34. He says, Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ not only dies for us, but he rose from the dead. And he's currently interceding for us before the Father. We are his. He loves us unto salvation. No matter what difficulties we face in this life, we are in Christ. We belong to him through faith in him. He died to forgive our sins that we may have his perfect righteousness before God, and he continues to intercede on our behalf. On our own, we are lost, broken, sinful, and rebellious. But Christ died so that we may be reconciled to God that we may no longer cling to our own failed righteousness, but that we may believe and embrace the gospel. We don't have to be good enough for God. We just have to trust and believe in His suffering servant, in His Son, Jesus Christ, the only one who was ever good enough, the holy, righteous one of God. Without Jesus Christ, we have nothing, but in Him, we have everything. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, holy and righteous God, we know that it is only by your grace that we are reconciled to you. We know that your grace was costly, but through the sacrifice of your Son, we may call you Father. We may know you and love you. We love you because you loved us first. May we always remember the immense sacrifice of Jesus May we reflect on your love and your grace to each other and to our neighbors. Lord, we know that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we humbly submit to your will, and we pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.